Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with the latest edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. My conversations with Scott McCartney, travel editor of the Wall Street Journal, with his latest reports on the real situation with air quality on board your plane. And a surprising update on the world's busiest airport. It will definitely surprise you, as well as the reasons why. Then, my chat with Congressman Steve Cohen from Tennessee's 9th District, and an update on passenger rights and some possible legislation to help. And last, but definitely not least, a talk with Emily Thomas, the author of The Meaning of Travel, and her look at the fascinating intersection between philosophy and travel. What do Francis Bacon and Henry Thoreau have in common, and how we may need to reshape our entire understanding of travel? First up, from the Wall Street Journal, Scott McCartney. My next guest, a regular on this show as well as our PBS series, The Travel Detective, he's the travel editor of the Wall Street Journal, Scott McCartney. Hey, Scott. Hey, Peter. You know, you've been writing a lot lately about something that people, if they're not talking about it, they are certainly thinking about it. And that is, all right, sooner or later, I'm going to get out to an airport. Sooner or later, I'm actually going to go from point A to point B, or the way the airlines are scheduling things, point A to point Z to point B. (laughs) But either way, I'm going to get on the plane. How risky is it? What are the real risks of getting on that plane, Scott? Yeah, and I think I think people right now are trying to decide: is it riskier to drive or or to fly? Um, the the answer is it's it is more risky. It is it, there is more danger of transmission um, than the airlines or airplane manufacturers would um, like you to believe right now. Um, but it's not nearly as dangerous as most people probably do believe. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. And there's been a lot of research going on. Um, the the airplane cabin itself um, really does have good ventilation. Uh, it seems to um, really help with uh, 
um, uh, COVID-19 transmission. Uh, it, it's, um, it's not the same as being outdoors, but it's also much better than being in a restaurant or bar or office building or, or something um, enclosed like that. Uh, you know, people think when they're flying along in an in a airplane tube uh, that it's sealed up, and it's not. Uh, you're, every two to three minutes, uh, the air is um, fully exchanging, and you're getting a mixture that, that's half fresh air from the outside and half air that, that really is uh, well-filtered. Um, with with these uh, HEPA filters that are used in in operating rooms. Now that said, the real dangers come from uh, boarding and deplaning. Um, and there's been some real recent research on this. Uh, some uh, German uh, researchers who do a lot of modeling, computer modeling simulations of airline travel, uh, came up with um, some some interesting uh, results that really showed uh, deplaning is the worst, um, but uh, boarding the airplane is. Uh, is dangerous. Uh, they one of their recommendations was do away with carry-on bags because you know when you're when a guy's putting a bag in the overhead bin, he's, he's right on top of you, sort of breathing down. Yeah. And the real risk on the plane is is somebody sneezing or coughing on you. Somebody within two rows of you, either side. Um, all of the previous research on uh, virus transmission, different um, uh, epidemics that that there have been, have has shown that uh, the the hot zone is is within two or three rows. Um, so wearing masks helps. Um, using hand sanitizer after going to the bathroom helps. Um, but statistically, there's actually been very little transmission um, that's been traced to onboard airplanes. And so it seems to be a whole lot safer than people think. You know, one of the things you mentioned was the, uh, the overhead bin. Some airlines, Alitalia, has now banned carry-on bags for that very reason. They don't want people using the overhead compartment. But here's the other question for you, Scott. We know, because we've been flying around a while, you know, the, the normal airplane cleaning cycles, which are now being, you know, airplane disinfectant cycles, uh, usually happen overnight. They don't really happen that much in the old days between flights because airplanes need to be turned around, get people off, get them back on, continue the plane. A plane earns no money when it's on the ground. How much have the airlines slowed their schedule to accommodate for that additional cleaning protocol, if at all, during the normal course of a day in the life of a plane? I think there's there, it generally, I mean, it's going to vary airline to airline, but generally there there is more cleaning that goes on between flights. Um, and, and that's a good thing. Is it good enough? Um, uh, you know, it, it seems to be so far. Uh, I do think that the, the, the researchers really are are um, thinking that uh, the danger of transmission is is less from contact surfaces, uh, and some of the air, airplane overnight cleaning they are experimenting with different um, cleaning substances substances um, that would actually uh, have a lingering benefit, so might be able to kill virus for hours or even days afterwards. Um, but the real danger comes from aerosol transmission, and uh, and there's and there's two kinds. One is the large droplets that you get from uh, from sneezing or coughing. But then now there's increasing concern about uh, just breathing, just uh, just these very fine, small uh, aerosol um, things that you spew out in in normal breathing. And it turns out that those small uh, particles are really what uh, get get sucked up quickly in airplane ventilation systems. Um, so there's still concern about the large droplets, but the small droplets, the airplane probably does a pretty good job with. Okay, so short of coming on the plane in a full hazmat suit, how are you going to fly? 
Uh, well, my company insists that I, I wear an N95 mask. Um, uh, that's the one that, that not only protects you from uh, from actually expelling a virus if you happen to be infected, but, but also from ingesting it. Uh, it's better than the regular cloth mask. Um, uh, I, you know, I think uh, sunglasses or other eye coverings, uh, I know people who have gone to, you know, buy industrial shop goggles, uh, things like that, um, that, that that does seem to be uh, a significant benefit, um, and I travel with uh, with hand sanitizer, um, and and that's really crucial uh, because if you are worried about surface contamination, uh, the the lavatory, the trip to the lavatory is is clearly the most dangerous thing on the airplane. Um, uh, that's when it, you know randomly somebody who is infected could have used the lavatory. You touch the door handle that they touched uh, or something, and you could transfer um, some viral yeah. material. Um, well, so I will hand tell everybody. Is really crucial. Well, speaking of hand sanitizer, the TSA has changed the rules. You know, you still can't come on board with a Diet Coke, but you yeah. can come on board with 12 ounces of hand sanitizer. How about that? They're yeah, you do no, it. it's, yeah. Um, you know, TSA checkpoint, by the way, another possible, we haven't talked about airports and, and all of that, but um, uh, distancing at the TSA checkpoint, um, being, being wary of the TSA officer breathing on you, um, all of that is really important, um, you know, perhaps more important than the airplane itself. A little bit later on the show, we're going to have Congressman Steve Cohen on, who just introduced a bill about changing the protocols of security screenings with the TSA to address exactly what you're talking about. So uh, stay tuned on that one. But, you know, you mentioned the mask. And what bothers me about the mask is that the FAA has not made it a federal air regulation. You can't not fasten your seatbelt. You're in violation of a federal air regulation and you get hauled off the plane and arrested. But a mask, they won't make the regulation. So the flight attendants are complaining to me that they don't want to be sky cops because they don't think they have the legal jurisdiction to back them up if they want to tell you you're going to get off the plane if you don't wear your mask. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. Um, and, it, and it's a real problem for the air, airlines, a particular problem for flight attendants. I mean, just think about it. A, a flight attendant does not want to confront somebody who's not wearing a mask. If that person happens to be infected, you don't want to get into a nose-to-nose argument with them on the airplane. Um, that's dangerous for the flight attendant and, and all the people around. So, you know, the card system, the air, different airlines have, have tried, you know, handing somebody a, a warning that says uh, you're going to get put on the no-fly list and all. Look, none of it has the rule of law behind it, and, and people know that. Uh, and I think, it, you know, it is um, masks really do make a difference, and all of the research, all of the data show that, um, particularly if somebody's uh, occupying the middle seat, uh, the mask becomes even more important. Yeah. Why there's not a federal rule on this, um, it, you know, it really does endanger people. Scott, you did a piece recently on the world's busiest airport, which surprised me because mm-hmm. I never would have picked it before, during, or after COVID-19. Why is that airport the world's busiest, and which one is it? Well, which one is it? Uh, it it's DFW, Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, and and you're right. Usually, fourth, fifth, sixth in in uh, in rankings. Um, the reason I I think is quite instructive of what's happening in travel uh, right now and what's going to uh, continue to happen in in the future. Um, the reason is um, the return of the the giant hub in the middle of the country. Um, we got away from a lot of hubs. There's a lot more direct flying uh, in, in the U.S. and 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 internationally. Um, but that's 
going away, uh, that has gone away in in this downturn, and I think it's going to be a long time uh, before it comes back. So more and more people are going to be connecting, and we've already seen this at at DFW, where uh, American in particular is bringing in so much connecting traffic that (laughs) this is a giant airport, and and they are using 100% of their gates at, uh, at peak times um, when American has its largest banks uh, going. Um, they, you know, their traffic is down 50%, uh, but that's a whole lot better than the rest of the world. Um, and so I think um, uh, this, this really is a, a sign that the whole travel industry is, is restructuring. Oh, it's definitely restructuring. And then most after that is October 1st, a bad day in aviation, right? When everybody yeah, gets, I think October you know. 1st is, is really going to be uh, a day of reckoning uh, for, for the airline business. Now, there may be uh, more stimulus funding that comes out of Congress that, that tries to uh, lessen the damage here. But uh, airlines have kept uh, everybody on the payroll, more or less, um, at least in terms of the, the flight crews and, and uh, operations workers, um, as uh, because of, of the federal CARES Act money that they've had. Well, September 30th, they no longer have to keep those people on the payroll. And I think we're already seeing uh, a slowdown in the in the summertime resurgence that we saw um, as as cases, COVID cases increase in different parts of the country. Uh, but come Labor Day, it's going to fall off a cliff. There is no business travel going on. Uh, and when schools start or try and start or Zoom start or whatever schools are going to do, um, that's going to keep people at home more. Uh, I think there's, there's just there is going to be a, a plumbing of uh, travel activity, um, and so you're going to see massive layoffs in the airline business. Yep. So DFW may not be the busiest airport at that point. <laughs> well, busiest is always relative. We we even I think this <laughs> I think this is the first time this ever happened in the, in the Wall Street Journal. But um, uh, we, we tried to get a uh, an asterisk in the headline um, <laughs> to say that this is the busiest airport, but. Uh, you know, you have to understand the special circumstances. Um, it was a, it, it, it's a, it's an unusual occurrence, uh, but I think it, it, I did it because I thought it was really important to illustrate uh, this whole idea of um, the return of the mid-continent hub and and how airlines were going to uh, operate in the future, where people are, you know, with a with a connecting flight, there's there's delay, there's missed baggage, there's there's a lot of hassle that goes with it, and people are are not necessarily going to be happy. You know, say where's what happened to my nonstop flight? Well, it's gone. Speaking of what happened to your nonstop flight out of the Los Los Angeles International Airport, American used to have a huge presence there. They have not just suspended, they have terminated 18 routes out yeah. of L.A. They're no yeah, longer going no, to fly to Shanghai or Beijing or Hong Kong or Buenos Aires. It's crazy. It, it, no, it is It is crazy. What's even crazier is when they when they did that, they said, oh, and by the way, uh, Dallas-Fort Worth is now going to become our Pacific hub. Um, and so, you know, it's it's a bit of a, a nod to the long range, to the longer range of airplanes. But the but the thought that the, your Pacific hub is going to be, you know, a thousand miles from the Pacific Ocean um, is is uh, is really quite remarkable. Um, you know, Los Angeles is such a big market, so important. Um, 
you know, so much uh, the Hollywood activity, the corporate activity. There were five different airlines trying to hub at LAX um, to, to capture that traffic. And uh, and with Americans pulled down waving the white flag, um, others are going to do that too. Um, but that's just another sign that um, what's really going to matter now are the airports in the middle of the country, not on the coast. Which is something that none of us could have ever anticipated. Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, this is the, they've been moving away from that for two decades. And, and we saw so many hubs in the middle uh, of the country, um, you know, Memphis, Cincinnati, Cleveland, uh, uh, St. Louis, you, you name it. Those, those all uh, went away. Um, and, but now Denver, Houston, Dallas, Chicago, they're all going to be a whole lot more important. My thanks to Scott, who you can also see as a regular on my PBS series, The Travel Detective. Next up, a legislative update from Representative Steve Cohen on what we might expect from Congress in terms of passenger rights. My next guest, we're always happy to have him back on the show. He knows all about this because he's a senior member of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Subcommittee on Aviation from Tennessee, Congressman Steve Cohen. Welcome, Congressman. Nice to be with you. You know, I, I have to ask you the first question, which is the obvious one. Have you been on a plane lately? Well, yeah, I go to Washington. I think we've been up there seven or eight times since the uh, uh, March 14 uh, coronavirus break. And, uh, yeah, so I've been on planes uh, seven or eight times, round trips, and sometimes uh, stopping off and have not been nonstops. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that. Uh, but what's been your experience? Experience has improved. You know, we were in the forefront of asking that the airlines require customers as well as personnel to wear masks, and they, they did that a few days after we requested it, and we requested Frontier not to do their uh, charge for the middle seat, which they uh, reversed and decided not to charge people for the middle seat. We see airlines now that weren't doing middle seats starting to do middle seats. So I think things have been okay. The personnel have been great. Most people have almost ever. I think everybody I've seen on the plane has had a mask on, except sometimes when they get on, they just, I notice when people are putting luggage up in the, in the bins above the uh, seats that they sometimes have their mask under their nose or even have it off. They think it's okay then, which is kind of bizarre. Maybe they sat down and they were going to, I don't know what happened, but I'd like <laughs> them to keep their masks on all the time. Well, speaking of masks, I want to ask you this because – one of the things that happens on every flight that I'm on, that you're on, is, of course, they tell you to wear your seatbelt. That's a federal air regulation. And if you don't cooperate, then you're in violating a federal statute and you're met by the marshals and it's not pretty. But the FAA has not, meant, uh, has not mandated uh, the, the wearing of a mask as an FAR. Well, they should. Um, I don't know why they haven't. But, uh, you know, the government is lax, especially in this administration, to put any requirements or on, on private industry and leave it up to the private industry. And, and that's been pretty much what uh, Trump has wanted, too. So I don't know if it's anything to do with the general philosophy of uh, uh, let the private sector do what they want, let the governors do what they want. We got nothing to do with this. Uh, these people are dying, but it's not on, our, on our, our, our watch. Well, you know, it brings up an interesting point because so many flight attendants have been complaining to me that they don't want to be in the position of being sky cops uh, where they don't have the legal jurisdiction to stand up for them with an FAR. So we you know, we see incidents all the time. I think it's decreasing lately, but we're still seeing them 
where people just refused. We just had one with Senator Ted, Ted Cruz. Cruz. Was right. He was flying, and a passenger st- shot the picture of him throughout the. Not only during the flight, uh, but it was an interesting story. He shuts, they shoot the picture of him sitting in the seat without wearing the mask uh, during an extended period of time. And then he said, "Well, that only happened for a few minutes on the plane." Well, somebody else took a picture of him at the airport, sitting in the in the departure gate, and he wasn't wearing a mask there either. Yeah. Well, his first excuse, he said that, and he did, I believe, in the picture, have a Starbucks coffee, or at least a Starbucks coffee container. I presume he was drinking coffee, and that gave him some some excuse there. I don't know how long he had been drinking, and how long he'd had if it still had coffee in it or not. Who knows? <laughs> but when he was in the uh, terminal uh he had no coffee he had no nothing he had no mask and you should be wearing it in the terminal just as much as those on the plane i agree and the other thing you brought up is uh the center seat we you know we talk about that all the time it's an interesting story because depending on whose survey you want to believe that sort of social distancing on a plane it seems like it's a good idea even though the distance is only maybe 22 inches between you and the window seat and the guy in the aisle seat uh, there's not been a lot of social distancing between you in the window seat and the guy behind you in the window seat, who's only about 14 to 16 inches away. And they then get closer and closer. They get closer and closer, right? Your knees are up against your neck to begin with. And then what makes things even more interesting is that the airlines that have made a public statement that they are not going to sell the center seat, uh, airlines like Delta and JetBlue, and they've even told us they're going to do it through September 30th. Uh, and the airline that you rep- that you mentioned, I think it was American Airlines, that's now selling the center seat, as is United. Uh, what's interesting in the optics here, uh, in their second quarter earnings report uh, just a few days ago, the chairman of Delta said that the number one reason why their bookings are increasing now, given by the passengers who booked them, is because they'd blocked the center seat. Well, they'll test that, that, that uh, consumer, you know, cause of booking with a certain airline or not. We'll see what happens. Uh, they're all going to probably fall in line. There's so few airlines, and the, the passenger will have no, no choice. Yeah, I mean, it's a quasi-monopoly uh, right now. Right, it is. And, you know, given the economic situation, we could see another merger or an acquisition simply because of the economic situation. But either way you look at it, whether that happens or not, there's, there are center seats on the plane for a reason, because the airlines want to sell them, Right. And they're going to sell Right. Them. Well, they made seats smaller and smaller. And this reminds me that we I don't believe we've ever gotten the results of the studies they did out in Tulsa or Oak City on, on the pitch and width and the, of seats from each other, which was something that I've got in a, a bill a few years ago. And they finally did the study to see you know, how they cram people in if it's a hazard to safety. They were doing evacuation tests. But I think these were done in November or December. So the results ought to be out. And I don't know, you know why they aren't, but I'll get with my staff person as soon as we get off this call and say, find out. <laughs> well, we're talking to Congressman Steve Cohen from Tennessee. Congressman, you know, you raise an interesting point about safety in the seats. Every airline is required to display and to prove that they can evacuate a fully loaded airplane uh, with half the exits blocked and in the dark in less than 90 seconds. And I'm always, uh, you know, I always laugh because every year the airlines always pass the test. And I'm convinced, and I, I, I know there's an argument against this, but I'm convinced they've hired the cast of Cirque du Soleil. I, don't uh, I just don't understand how else they could do it. Well, they certainly don't have any people with disabilities and any little young children and people that uh, act kind of normally uh, on a plane. They're, they're not, it's not a representative crew. They limit themselves to people that are only 60 years of age, nobody over 60, so they don't get seniors, and that's a lot of their flyers. I don't think they have any about disabilities. And the reason they do that, allegedly, is because they don't want to have any possibility of, uh, of, of, of 
claim coming against them for putting somebody in a difficult situation and maybe negligence and being hurt. Well, if that's the case, they certainly would would make an, uh, an exit in, in an emergency circumstance more treacherous and, and, and take longer. So it's by their own admissions of the reasons they don't have seniors and people with disabilities in their in their evacuation test group is there's a reason to know that their evacuation tests aren't valid. My thanks to the congressman. And now, talk about a book with great timing. Emily Thomas has written The Meaning of Travel. The title alone suggests she has a huge challenge, but she's chosen an interesting route, an exploration of the places where history and philosophy meet with some new and thoughtful observations. You know, there's an interesting phenomenon happening now, an intersection of thoughts and timing that was certainly unprecedented and unanticipated. Think about this. Right now, probably for the first time in our history and maybe even in the history of the world, the entire world is sort of living in fear of the same threat, right? COVID-19. And it affects everything. It affects every country. It affects the economies. I don't have to tell you that. But the one thing, which is so perfect for our discussion today, that it affects is travel. And it calls into question why we travel. Uh, Not necessarily you know, when or where or if, but let's get down to it. Why do we travel? Is it part of our cultural DNA now? Has that changed radically? Are we traveling because we want to travel or perhaps, and more intensely, because we need to travel? And joining me now is the author of a new book that could not have been perfectly timed any better. The name of the book, The Meaning of Travel by Emily Thomas, who's joining us from England. Hello, Emily. Hi, Peter. So you heard my introduction. I mean, When we think about the original travelers, one of the things that you talk about in your book is the original philosophers. And most of those guys were not big travelers, were they? (laughs) That's true. Many philosophers were not big travelers. So Socrates was famous for never setting foot outside of Athens. He argued he didn't need to go anywhere because he could travel anywhere he wanted just by reading books. (laughs) That was enough. Kant as well, unfortunately, famously never went beyond a few miles of Konigsberg, his hometown. And these people were really happy just to stay at home. They'd have been quite content with lockdown, I think. And then some other philosophers decided to get a little <laughs> more bold and thought that it was it was their duty to gather information, right? That's the reason why they traveled. They wanted to study. Absolutely, yeah. So the history of leisure travel really starts with people thinking that we need to learn about the world, become educated in history and languages, and and that travel is the way to do that. So you get leisure travel as a form of education, and then you also get these philosophers, and it all starts with Francis Bacon back in the 16th century, who argues that the only way science is going to progress is through travel. And, And Bacon offers us a new philosophy of science where you don't learn about trees by sitting in your armchair and pondering the nature of trees. You learn about trees by going out into the world and looking at them. And for Bacon, travel was central to this new scientific enterprise. So suddenly travel becomes tangled with philosophy from the 16th, 17th centuries. All these people are going out into the world trying to learn about it. You know, I remember when I first went to London, I found myself wonderfully ensconced in in an old and rare bookstore. And I got to the travel section and almost every title from the British authors were like, my walk through England. (laughs) 
you know, everything was my walk through Scotland. And I opened up the book and they weren't writers as much as they were basically note takers and observers, right? Yes, absolutely. That became really, really popular. Um, So theories of the picturesque became very popular in sort of 18th, 19th century England. And the idea is that you wander around and you take in picturesque scenes. (laughs) But this is quite a far cry, I think, from these ambitious philosophers who were saying, we need to go out into the farthest corners of the world and observe it. Um, Wandering around your local fields does not seem to be the same kind of thing. Well, in a way, you know, the first travel writing really was from the explorers who were just note takers. I mean, that's the way I look at it. They were collecting data. They were, absolutely. They were geographers and cultural historians, and they were map makers as well. I mean, they're literally recording new places that exist that they didn't know existed in the world before they arrived. And of course, the first map makers, let's be honest, were a little bit dreamer. Their actual, <laughs> I mean, let's face it, they were, draw- they were drawing places in many cases that didn't quite exist that way either. Yeah, they were absolutely doing that. Looking at historical maps can be very funny <laughs> for exactly that reason. Right, so historical maps of the US drawn by European map makers, you often see California as an island off by itself. <laughs> And um, there's no sign of uh, Emily. Things. Emily, I got Emily. I got to stop you. California is an island off by itself <laughs> in so many ways. Uh, but I, I hear your point. Uh, I'll but, take but, that. <laughs> and then, of course, in the United States, travel writing, such as it was, was really turned on its head by by Thoreau. Yeah, it was. I say Thoreau is heavily influenced by um, his colleague Emerson. And Thoreau begins to think, to learn about the world, we need to go out into wilderness and sort of soak it up. And so he does this famous walk out um, by Walden Pond, and he builds himself a hut there and lives in this log cabin in the woods for a couple of years. And he's soaking up the sights and sounds of nature. And off the back of this, he creates this big new nature philosophy. And then that went on to have a huge impact. When did travel, I mean, I'm reminded of, of a book that I think everybody should read now. It's got such meaning now uh, by Mark Twain, and it's not Huckleberry Finn. It's a it's it's his travels around uh, the world, on first on a steamer, and it's called the Innocence Abroad, and it's over you know God 150 years ago, and that really was an, an eye opening book for me because for all of the people listening to the show who may have a problem about you know nickel and diming charges at hotels or or interesting cultural idiosyncrasies and stuff, I got to tell you Mark Twain hit them all. Uh, you know, his nickel and diming was not about whether they want to charge you a resort fee. His nickel and diming was whether they want to charge you for a candle or a bar of soap. Um, so I guess the, the, que- the question I want to ask you is, at what point did travel become a transition from an ordeal to an activity that people really aspired to do? In the West, that really happened in the 17th century with what's known as the Grand Tour. So you have these young rich aristocrats sent off by their families to learn languages and become cultured and preferably to bring home lots of souvenirs with which to adorn their country estates. 
<laughs> that you had to have lots of money in order to do this. Right, so travel didn't really open up to the masses until a bit later. In the 18th century, in the West, you've got less wars being fought, things become cheaper. And then you begin to get the first package tours. Companies like Thomas Cook begin taking tourists around the world. And they did for quite some time until about eight months ago. I know. Sadly. Um, yeah. I know. Now, one of the things that you bring up in the book is that for a long period of time, travel was really dominated by, by men. When did That's... women when did women enter the, the world of travel, if you will? There have always been women travelers, but women travelers have, having a voice of their own and undertaking leisure travel independently it really doesn't start until the 17th, 18th centuries. And again, they tend to be wealthy, privileged, um, that even though you have these exceptional women who are wandering off and doing things around the world, um, they, they are perceived to be so exceptional. That, so if you take Victorian lady explorers, women like Mary Kingsley say, when they come home from their travels, uh, they are perceived to be so masculinized by their travels that the press is desperate to say, oh, they have done all these male exploring things, but they're terribly feminine, really. <laughs> they're wearing dresses. <laughs> So even though women begin to travel, um, travel is still seen as this real male activity. Yep, I, I get it. Because if you go to the bookstore and you want to learn about the great explorers of the world, there are not yeah, a lot of women in those books. That is absolutely true, yes. And even today, lists of famous explorers, famous travelers, they tend to be dominated by men. Um, and this really contributes to the notion that travel is gendered male that our very concept of travel is gendered male in the same way that pinkness can be gendered female but these problems persist even today in things like travel writing you don't find as many women winning travel writing prizes or the editing prestigious travel writing magazines it is still an industry that has issues in this regard and that definitely comes from this long history of travel being something that men do it whilst women sort of stay at home and tend the hearth fires well you know we talk about the concept of solo travel for so many years that was that was an act attributed to men and now we're starting yeah. to see a change in that where women are traveling by themselves they're not afraid they're blazing new trails on their own uh they're not worried about literally leaving their hotel room at night and, and exploring right Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this has been going on for a while. Mary Wollstonecraft back in 1786 published her travels around Norway, Sweden and Denmark. And that was perceived to be really scandalous, like a woman traveling by herself. And today it's it's really common now. There are lots of blogs dedicated to solo women travel. Yeah. And I I've done lots of traveling by myself. I actually think there are huge benefits to it. And why do you travel? For me, it's the same reason I do philosophy. And that is, I want to understand how the world works, what's out there. I think travel and philosophy are both fueled by curiosity about what exists. And, and doing these activities is ways of grasping that. And ways of being able to put the world in perspective. Yeah, very, very much so, which really matters right now, I think. Um, it does. I think it's really reassuring to 
appreciate how little we are in the grand scheme of things. And travel and philosophy both give you that sense. There's a book that I'd also recommend. It goes back many, many years by Somerset Maugham called The Reporter's a Writer's Notebook. And uh, all they are are his observations on his travels. Some some chapters might be a paragraph. Some may be 25 pages. Some may be just a, a little short story about somebody he discovered at a train station in the middle of uh, Mumbai, or in those days, Bombay. Uh, and in a way, it, it gives you an idea of what he got a chance to see when nobody else was seeing it. But let me go back to one other thought with you. And and, and I go back to uh, during the economic crisis back in 2008, 2009, I found mm. myself in Paris working on a story uh, then for NBC, and I walked into uh, the, the hotel, and it was completely full of Americans at a time when we were having huge economic problems back home. And I know that the, the, the rate in the hotel was not inexpensive, I knew that Paris was not inexpensive. The value of the dollar against the euro was not beneficial. And every American I stopped, I asked them the same question. Why are you here now? And they basically said it wasn't because it was inexpensive. It wasn't because the flights were cheap. It wasn't because it was uncrowded. There was a certain desperation of travel that they had or a desperation to travel in which they, they sort of embraced the last supper mentality, which said... We felt if we didn't travel now, we'd never travel. And I see that coming back now in the wake of COVID-19, where as each individual country slowly emerges from this, it'll be very interesting to see not whether people travel, not who travels, but how fast they travel. I think it will be slow in the beginning. I Yeah, I think this is going to have a huge impact on... <laughs> on where we travel and how we do it. But I definitely think that we will still continue to travel. Curiosity is gonna drive us out into the world. And although virtual travel is becoming more popular, there's been this rise in armchair travel of virtual art galleries, virtual museums. I think they're just not gonna give people the same experience that you get from going and standing in a place and seeing it for yourself. But part of that is a thrill of danger. I think and um, there's a frisson that comes from travel that you are just not going to get from a book. So basically you're tempting the gods. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, yeah. And it might be in a fairly mild way. I, I think there's this long history of traveling for the sublime, for this feeling of pleasurable terror, standing really close to a waterfall, but not too close. And, and I think that is just something you can only get by being there. You're not really in danger, but you're close enough to feel like you might be. And then you get to that. Then you get to come home and brag about it. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. Although if you do too much bragging, I suspect people will not listen to you for too long. Although in a world of experiential one-upsmanship, bragging has a role to play. I mean, people want to come back, and they don't still want to show you their, 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 you know, their souvenir pictures of Niagara Falls. They want to show you them going over Niagara Falls. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely true. Yeah, and in fact, last year that was one of the big drivers of tourism, like travel to show. People are talking about this Instagram generation of travelers, where a lot of it is about is about showing where you've been, not just about being there. Exactly. And you know what? That will continue too. But remember, we have to have curiosity once again take precedence over fear. 
Absolutely. Yes, definitely. And the unfamiliar is good for us. I think seeing things that are strange and alien to you, it helps you to think about the world differently. It expands your mind. And we need that stuff. That's good for humans. Not only is it good for humans, I think it's essential. I I, I think we have to have that. Uh, you know, we're, there's no doubt that we're living in a global village. Right now, we're all isolated. We're also we're all siloed. And short of becoming a barricaded suspect, we really want to get out. So it'll be interesting to see, tracking what you said in the book, how we're going to do that. My thanks to Emily Thomas, to Congressman Cohen, and to Scott McCartney. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more interviews with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, make sure to subscribe, rate, or review this Ion Travel podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. You can also go to petergreenberg.com for the latest in travel news updates. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.